0: And so for the rest of us, you're going to need a Bible, uh, so you can grab one and turn to John chapter 11. Um, One of my favorite movies from the last, I don't even remember when it came out, from the last 15 years, um, is The Dark Knight. And so I grew up loving Batman, and so when that movie came out... um, Loved it, still love it. And uh, there's there's a scene near the beginning of the movie, if you remember, uh, you know, the Gotham police have been cleaning up the streets and Batman's helping them and and now criminals are afraid to go out at night because all these good things are happening, and this the city's becoming safer. And so all the the mobsters in the city meet, have this secret underground, meeting and they're discussing what is going on and it's not a good thing and if you remember then you know the joker shows up and and what basically is decided is well we need to kill Batman. That would solve all of our problems right as criminals. This guy who is who is disrupting everything that we've built in this city, he's gotta die. That's our text this morning. Now it's not Batman, but what we're gonna see in our text is almost the same thing. The religious leaders meet and they go, this guy Jesus, we have to kill him. Um, If you remember last week, John 11, we looked at the first 44 verses and it was this unbelievable miracle that Jesus does um, to show his love for this family, uh, uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, uh, to show his power and his perfect timing. And a man that had been dead for four days, rotting in a tomb, uh, Jesus calls Lazarus outside, and this dead man is raised to life. And so we saw this unbelievable miracle, and really what it was, John has been leading to this climax of all of these different signs that Jesus has been doing to confirm that He is the Messiah. And so this is the last and final sign, and it's this amazing miracle, but also what this sign does is, like I said, it kind of pushes the narrative into the last week of Jesus' Life And what we're going to see in our text today is the outcome of this miracle is, right, the mobsters meet, the religious leaders, and they go, we have to kill Jesus. Like, this is enough, right? This is the final straw. we got to get rid of this guy. So if you have a Bible, John 11, uh, I'm going to start reading in verse 45. This is right after um, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. Many of the Jews, therefore and our nation. So you see mixed responses, right? All along in John, it's like anytime Jesus does anything, you see very mixed responses. Some, this guy's amazing. Some, "Eh, I'm not so sure about this guy. And then some, we got to get rid of him. And so our, our text is no different. We're told in verse 45, after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, many believed in him. And so we should say, praise God, there were Jews who were there, who were with Mary, they saw a dead man uh, raised to, to new life, and they believed in Jesus. This guy is the Messiah. But verse 46 says, but, right, some of them went to the Pharisees. Now, some scholars have said, well, maybe they were just excited about what happened and, and they wanted to tell more people, but I think it's, it's not that at all, because it's a contrast to those who did believe, right? Some believed, verse 46, but some went and tattled. That's what, that would be my translation. They went, Pharisees, you're not gonna like this. <laughs> Guess what Jesus did? And they, they went and they, they ratted Jesus out to the Pharisees, right? Look, listen to what Jesus has done now. And so in verse 47, we have this meeting, right? The chief priests, the Pharisees, they gathered the council, right? It's just the mobsters meet underground, okay, and they're scheming what is going, what is going on? Now, when John says council, what he's referring to is the Sanhedrin. This was the Jewish governing body of of the day. Think of it as, this is the Supreme Court of the Jewish nation, essentially. They were the ones who, you know, the the Roman Empire is occupying Israel, but they gave them a little bit of seeming power. And so these 71 Jewish men made up the Sanhedrin, and it included the high priest. It included the captain of the temple. So if you remember the temple guard, the captain of the temple. It it included members of the leading priestly family. It, it, It had a bunch of Sadducees. And then there was this small minority of Pharisees that were a part of the Sanhedrin as well. So that's who gathers, right? 71 people, the high priest is there, the captain of the temple guard is there, all these different priests and Sadducees, and and they're meeting together. And what they're meeting for is, what are we going to do, guys? This man, right, is performing many signs, verse 47. This man is, is doing all of these signs. So here's what's interesting, The Pharisees and the the council, they're admitting that Jesus is doing miracles. They're no longer denying it. They're no longer saying, no, he's not actually doing what he says he's doing. They're going, look, this guy, Jesus, is doing all of these miracles. So they're admitting it. They can't deny the miracles, right? Lazarus is confirmed dead for four days, and then he's walking around. So they can't go, ah, that's not really a miracle. They're going, okay, he's doing all of these miracles. What are we going to do? So, notice that in the face of all of these miracles, they're still choosing to not believe because they don't want to believe, because I believe that they prefer their sinful lifestyle. And so, this is their, their response, verse 48, if we let Him go on like this, everyone's going to believe in Him, and the Romans are going to come and take away our place and our nation. So essentially, I'm, I'm picturing a panic attack. They're freaking out. Okay, if we just let Jesus keep going along like this, meaning they've tried. Think about all the ways they've tried. They've tried official disapproval. They've said, no, Jesus is not uh uh good they've tried to dissuade people they've tried excommunication remember the blind man well we're going to excommute the guy that that confesses jesus is lord he's now kicked out they've tried that they've tried counter teaching and in the other gospels we see that members have come and tried to trip jesus up and confuse him and a- ask unanswerable questions i mean they've tried all of these things nothing is is shutting jesus up he just keeps going right so they're, go- they're saying, if we just let Jesus keep going like this, everyone's going to believe in him. And the worry is, Rome is going to hear about it, and they're going to come and, and put a, a, an end to it. They're going to squash this. So their worry is, Jesus is going to lead some kind of insurrection, because it's happened in the past people who have kind of gathered a following and they've tried to overthrow the occupying force. So they think Rome's going to hear of this Jesus guy that he's leading an an insurrection and then Rome is going to take away our place, which means their temple, and our nation, meaning this kind of semi-autonomous state that the Romans had given them. I mean, they didn't really have any authority or... Or power. It was kind of an illusion, but Rome had given them somewhat autonomy. And so, they're worried, okay, Rome's going to come and destroy our temple, and they're going to take away whatever power we think we have. So, notice the, de- the deliberation in the council among these religious leaders, it's not anymore about Jesus breaking Sabbath, if you remember earlier. It's not anymore about Jesus blaspheming. Right? They're not meeting going, this guy is blaspheming our holy God. That's not on the table. What they're saying is, this guy is threatening our power. we got to get rid of him because of what Rome is going to do. So it's a very selfish reason that they want to murder Jesus. They like power. The religious leaders have prestige. They're corrupt, and they don't want that to change. Now, here's what's so ironic if you, you know, fast forward in history. Uh, the, the religious leaders got rid of Jesus, so to speak. I mean, they had him crucified, but he rose from the dead. And, and their reasoning for crucifying Jesus was, we don't want to lose our temple, and we don't want to lose the, 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 the autonomy that we have. We're worried if we don't kill Jesus, Rome is going to squash us. And what happened in 70 A.D.? Rome did exactly what they're worried about. And and actually, it happened because they rejected Jesus. So isn't that so ironic? John is painting this picture that they're biting their nails going, man, if we don't murder Jesus, Rome is going to squash us. So they murder Jesus, and what happens? Rome squashes them. So this is their plan. we got to do something. We can't just let Jesus keep going on like... He is. Verse 49, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Isn't that polite? Sounds like a lovely fellow. You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So you have Caiaphas, who is the high priest. He speaks up, right? They're all talking, going, what is happening? If we just let Jesus keep, this is not good. we got to do something. And Caiaphas stands up, the high priest, and he says, you know nothing at all. Literally, if you translate it literally, he says, you don't know nothing. Isn't that great? He would, would fit in up here, right? You don't know nothing. I guess we're not, anyways. Um, I was going to say, that's not, that's like Alabama. Um, literally, you guys don't know anything, Now, it's interesting because the Sadducees, historically, they were known to be very rude. Uh, Even Josephus, who was a historian, he wrote that the, the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, the council, they had a very bad reputation of being very rude to one another and to people. And so here you have Caiaphas, they're all disgusting, and he stands up, he goes, you guys don't know anything, right? It's better, verse 50, that one man die for the people than the whole nation, And so you go, well, that's interesting. In verse 51, we're we're given a little bit of insight. It says that he didn't say that of his own accord, but he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and gather the children scattered abroad. So there's two things that are happening at the same time here. Caiaphas, first, first what's happening is what Caiaphas actually said, right? What he says is, hey, it's better that one man should die for the people than the whole nation perish. Caiaphas is not talking in a Christian sense. We have to, we have to understand that. We would look at that. If you, if you don't do some digging, you would go, oh, maybe Caiaphas kind of believed and Jesus had to die for our sins. That's not what Caiaphas means. He's not, he's not talking from a Christian sense. Yes, Jesus has to die for our sins. He's just saying, this is a political statement. Let's use Jesus as a scapegoat to spare us and spare the nation from Rome. What he means is the answer to our problem, boys, is that Jesus has to die. He must be sacrificed if Israel wants to continue in Rome's favor. Like, it's a pity if one guy has to die unjustly, but if it's a choice between Jesus' death and the nation's destruction, then one guy should die. Right? If, if you know this, the, the phrase, the ends justify the means, this is essentially what Caiaphas is saying, right? Sure, okay, yeah, killing someone's not great, but look at the means, like the, or, or sorry, rather, look at the end, right? If we're sparing the nation from being destroyed by Rome, the ends justify the means, right? So uh, you've, you've done this before. Maybe you've done these kind of thought uh, experiments or you've had conversations, like is it... Is it okay to steal bread if I was starving and I had to feed my family? Right? And, and lots of people say, well, the ends justify the means. You got to take care of your family. So, in that case, yeah, I guess stealing's wrong, but you got to feed your family, right? So, the ends justify the, the means. Um, recently, I watched a 10 a part series on Netflix. Uh, called World, World War II in Color. I don't know if you've seen this. Fascinating. Ten-part series of all of this archival footage that they now colorized and then kind of gave comments about it. But they, there was a whole episode about the dropping of the atomic bomb on Japan. And, um, you know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and they, they dropped these two atomic bombs. And when you when you when you hear some of the the rationale behind what they did. I'm not saying that it was right or wrong, but the rationale was, okay, the ends justify the means. Yes, it's going to be absolutely devastating to drop an, an atom bomb on a city, but if it means the war will end, then we need to do it, right? That's what Caiaphas is saying. Caiaphas is saying, okay, sure, killing a guy might be wrong, but to spare the whole nation from Rome, we should kill this guy. The ends justify the means. That's what he's saying. So, he's not giving a, an admission of faith, and we're even told that um, in verse 51, he didn't say this of his own accord, meaning Caiaphas, is, he, he doesn't know how, how right he is. He, he's, he's, um, he's speaking more than he knows. He's not a prophet from God, but God was using him to speak the truth more than he was actually even a- a- aware of. Jesus would die for the nation, and we're told that Jesus also dies for all the children of God scattered abroad. So notice what there's two layers happening here. Caiaphas, in his seeming brilliance, is doing this political chess move. And yet God, what he means is this is the Lamb of God taking away the sins of the world. Now this brings up something that lies at the heart of what we believe as Christians. At the heart of the Christian faith is the idea of substitution. Jesus in your place. I mean, this is central. If there is no idea of substitution, there is no Christian faith. It's at the very heart of what we believe. Caiaphas prophesies, unawares, that Jesus would die for the nation. He would die for all the children of God scattered. Jesus was going to die instead of them And so this brings up this idea of Jesus as a substitute. Now, it brings up the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement, right? There's your $10 theological word of the day. Penal substitutionary atonement. Now, when we say atonement, what we mean is the work that Jesus did in his life and his death to earn our salvation. That is the atonement, what he did for us. Now, penal substitutionary atonement the word penal means christ bore your penalty when he died the idea that human beings we owe a penalty because of our sin to god and on the cross jesus bore that penalty i mean Roman, uh, romans five twelve. therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all Sinned, and then in chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is the wages of sin? What is the payment for sin? It's death. So we owed a, a, a payment to God, we owed a penalty to God. And what is the payment? What is the penalty? Death, physical death, and eternal death, separation from God. Even Isaiah 53 says, "All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned aside, everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him Jesus the iniquity of us all." So the penalty of sin had to be paid, and Jesus paid our our penalty. Now, the word substitutionary, right? Penal substitutionary atonement, substitutionary just means Jesus is our substitute. He died in our place, right? We owed a penalty. Jesus says, I'm going to pay that penalty for you. He then is our substitute. You deserved the death that Jesus died, and yet he was your substitute. 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Um, 1 Peter three eighteen. for Christ also suffered once for sin the righteous for the unrighteous. So, Jesus for you. You are the unrighteous. Jesus is the righteous that He might bring us to God. So, you'll see, like, penal substitutionary atonement, if you take that away, you don't have Christianity anymore. The idea that we owed a penalty and Jesus took our place on the cross. He was our substitute, right? Caiaphas, one man should die instead of everybody. That's, that's this doctrine, now, it's fascinating. Over the years, um, this doctrine has come under attack from people within the church, um, people from outside the church, and the, the idea is, well, the idea that, that we owe a penalty to God and then, and then Jesus is on the cross and he's our substitute and God pours out all of his anger and wrath against our sin on his own son people go well that just seems so mean that seems so cruel and they go well we don't like that anymore we, we don't believe in penal substitutionary atonement so I'll give you a really clear example do you so the song that we sing um on the cross as Jesus died the wrath of God was satisfied right we know we know those lyrics That's that's this doctrine. And and, and over the years, there were Christians that met and said, "Ah, we don't like that, that's so mean. And they rewrote the song. I don't know if you're aware of this. On the cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. We don't want to talk about wrath. We don't want to talk about God being angry at sin or Jesus paying the penalty for us. No, 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 no. The cross is just God showing his love for us. And there's a lot of like these kind of like progressive ideologies, this progressive Christianity, which is an oxymoron, that's not Christianity. I would rebrand it progressive idolatry, Um, but there's this kind of movement in Christianity where it's like, well, I don't like that part, so it's not true then. God sends people to hell? No. God poured his wrath out onto Jesus instead of us? No, I don't like that. God's not judgmental. God's not just. He's not angry. He's just all about love. That's not Christianity. Because here's the question. How can you and I go from being God's enemy to being his friend, being his children? It can't just magically happen. The Bible says we owe a debt to God. So how do we go from enemy to beloved son and daughter? How can God forgive me and still be holy? My penalty needed to be paid. I needed someone to take my place, and Jesus does this. So in the midst of these religious leaders and the high priest scheming, I love that even unaware to them, they're, they're saying the gospel to one another. <laughs> like Caiaphas is preaching the gospel. He doesn't even realize it. Yes, Jesus, this man should die for all the people. And it's like, hey, Caiaphas, do you realize what you're saying? Like that's exactly the gospel. Jesus in our place. And so in verse 53, it says, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So we've seen already uh, attempts on Jesus' life. But all previous attempts on his life have been very spontaneous reactions, right? They pick up stones to kill him, or or they try and grab him and arrest him. So we've gone from spontaneous outbursts and reactions to now there's this definitive decision by the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court in Israel. Jesus has to die. And we're told that from that day on, they began to make plans, okay, how are we going to carry this out? Now, from verse 54 to the end of the chapter, we're just given some detail, and really what it is, is it's a setup for the next half of the book. And we're told that because, uh, I'll just read it, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So you get these kind of like detail uh, things that that are setting up the, the next half of of the gospel. We're told that Jesus somehow probably uh, heard word that, okay, now there's this plan in place. So he's not walking openly among the crowds anymore. He, he and his disciples actually retreat to the wilderness, to this place called Ephraim. And that's where he's staying. And then we're told that now the Passover of the Jews is, is coming up. And people were heading to Jerusalem early because what you would do, we're told in verse 55, is that they would purify themselves before the Passover. So if you had come into contact with a dead body, if you were suffering somehow unclean from from one of the mosaic laws then you would go and you would do these ritual things to purify yourself before the passover but i love that if you can picture it it's like jerusalem is is buzzing with this drama right people are looking for jesus and it's like they're standing in the temple hey what do you think do you think he's going to show up I can just picture it. No, there's no way he would come. I haven't, didn't you hear? The chief priest said, if, if we see him, we got to report him. He's going to be arrested. So there's all of this, this buzzing in, in, in Jerusalem wondering, what's going to happen? Is Jesus going to come? So this, this, this passage is fascinating. You have 71 religious leaders plotting the murder of Jesus. And we see underneath that, God using that very thing to bring about redemption. Like, can you you imagine, right? We have a ministerial here in town. Can you imagine if like the pastors in this town gathered at our next ministerial, Graham has to die. (laughs) But can you, that's what, that's what it is. The people who are like, I, I I, am the one who is a connection between you and God, all of you normal people. We're the priests and the, the high priests and the Pharisees, and they're plotting to murder someone. And yet we're told underneath, man, they're speaking more true than they think because God is actually going to use that. It's all part of his plan to bring about redemption. So the one question of application then, that we need to re- spend some time wrestling with is, is God sovereign even over evil? Can and does God use evil plans to bring about good? Because, I mean, I mean, look, you, t- you talk about evil, this is probably the worst evil that has ever been committed. Jesus was the only truly innocent, perfect man who ever lived, and we have a group of religious leaders plotting to kill him. That, that is wicked. And yet we're told that it's that very thing that God is using to accomplish our salvation. So is God sovereign even over evil? Like we look at our world and you see evil and wickedness and tragedy and pain and suffering. Is God sovereign over that? I mean, this is, this is a, a huge deterrent for many people because they look at the world and, and then they see that God is described as sovereign, in control, holy good, not evil, and they go, how do these two things go together? If God really is in control, then why is He allowing all of this bad stuff to happen? Is He actually sovereign? Now, for sure, the Bible says that God is not the one that causes evil, God is not the one who tempts us to do evil. I mean, even James 1.13 says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. So I'm not saying, when I say God is sovereign over evil, I'm not saying that God's the one causing evil or doing evil, but is He he, he in control over it? Um, I saw this even when COVID... um, I've, I've been really enjoying not talking about COVID, by the way, uh, but I have to use this example. Uh, but when COVID began, I saw many a pastor make little YouTube videos saying, no, 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 this is not from God. He is not in control of this. Don't blame God. And it was almost like, okay, we're God's PR people, and we need to pr- protect his reputation a little bit. And so I saw, even in our own town, people going, no, 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 no. COVID is not God's doing. He's like hands off, right? God." God only gives us good things right i even heard one say well god can only give what he has and i'm like what does that even mean that makes zero sense because those same people will be like by the way god gave me a new lamborghini it's like really does god have a lamborghini Hmm, interesting but i saw all of these people all of these people wrestling is god sovereign over covid is he doing this is he allowing it is god sovereign over evil Is this an isolated example? Right? John 11, the Sanhedrin planning evil and God using it for good. Is that just an isolated example or does this happen? So I want to give you five examples from the Bible. Five examples to show that this is not an isolated incident. God often uses evil plans of men to bring about good. He is sovereign even over the worst injustices in the Bible and in history. So, five examples from from the Bible. The first is in Genesis 38. It's the story of Judah and Tamar. Um, Many of you uh, may not know this story. It's one that it's like, uh, I'm just going to flip that page because it's quite uh, disturbing, but I'll just summarize it for you. Judah finds a wife for his son, Ur, and the, the wife's name is Tamar, And we're told that his son, Ur, dies. And so the next son, Onan, would marry Tamar. That was their culture. You had an obligation. And then Onan dies. So now Judah Judah is out two sons. And then we're told that Judah then holds back his third son from Tamar. It's the idea of like, what is wrong with this woman that my son keeps dying? So I'm going to hold back my third son from Tamar, which culturally was, you're not supposed to do that. So Tamar dresses up like a prostitute. And we're told, long story short, that Judah is intimate with her, and, and that's his daughter-in-law. And she becomes pregnant, and then Judah is busted, essentially, for what he's done. They find out that, okay, Judah was the one who did this, this act of wickedness. So you read that story and you go, that is just so wicked, that is so sinful, that is atrocious what took place. And we're told that Tamar, uh, Tamar then has twins Perez, and Zara, And you look at that story and, and, and your first inclination would be, why is this included in the Bible? It's awful. It is an awful story of wickedness and evil and sin. How could God allow this to happen? Do you know who came from this family line? Jesus. You read Matthew 1 and the genealogy of Jesus, and I won't read all of it, but it says this in verse 3, and Judah... The father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron and on and on leading to Jesus. So you see that God takes an atrocious act of evil and he brings about the birth of the Savior of the world. Second story is Joseph. Many of you know the story of Joseph, right? Joseph is one of 12 boys. And he is the father's favorite, right? The technicolor dream coat, right? And so, uh, anyways, Joseph, you know, tells dreams to his, you're all going to bow down to me. And he, he's, and I'm like, Joseph, keep those dreams to yourself, man. Um, but his brothers end up plotting to, to get rid of him, and they throw Joseph in a pit, and they sell him to slave traders. And so, Joseph then becomes a slave in a man named Potiphar's house, And he kind of rises to the ranks and Potiphar trusts him. And then one day his wife, Potiphar's wife, comes on to Joseph and he flees. And Potiphar's wife essentially accuses him of rape. And so he's sent to prison. And we're not told how long he's in prison for, but in prison, he kind of rises to the ranks again, and eventually he's released from prison, and he's, you know, guy number two in the kingdom of Egypt, Uh, just Pharaoh is above him, and we're told that there's a famine in the land, and Joseph's brothers come to Egypt for help, and Joseph reveals all of this to them. So in Genesis 45, it says this, so Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please, and they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Is God sovereign over evil? And then in Genesis 50, many of you know this verse, Joseph says, as for you, you brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God was sovereign over Joseph being sold, being a prisoner, being accused of rape, being a prisoner again, rising in the ranks. God is sovereign over all of that. He says, you meant it to be evil, but God was behind it, using it for good. Third example, David and Bathsheba. Many of you know this story. King David um, sees a beautiful woman bathing, and he's the king. So he calls, bring her to me. Commits adultery. This is a married woman. She gets pregnant, and then David schemes and plots to get her husband killed. You know, we got to cover this up. And so Uriah, uh, Bathsheba's husband, is killed in battle on purpose. It's like, let's all advance and then everyone retreat and then Uriah will be the only one up there and he'll obviously be killed. And we look at that and we go, that is just wickedness. A man who sleeps with another man's wife and then gets her husband killed? That's awful. How could God possibly redeem that? How could he be sovereign over that? Well, again, like this is Jesus' lineage. Matthew 1.6, the same passage talking about here's the, the family tree of Jesus. Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. This is you, you thought your family was messed up. Like Jesus uses all, or God uses all of these terrible, atrocious things that happen to bring about the Savior of the world. Fourthly, uh, think of the example of Judas. Judas is one of Jesus's hand-picked 12 disciples. He was with Jesus for three years, traveling and Seeing all of these miracles and witnessing all of these amazing things and hearing all of this amazing teaching from Jesus. But we're told that all along Judas was greedy and he was a thief. He was the, the one in charge, we'll, we'll read next week, the one in charge of the money for the, for the group and he would steal from it. And so we read in Luke 22, then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money, so he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him in the absence of a crowd. I mean, that is just awful. It's wickedness. Like, if you can think of a, a close group of friends... Think of your own life for three years and and more so than our day and age. Think of someone that you lived with, did ministry with, did life with for three years and then they stab you in the back in the worst possible way. Literally sell you and find a way, okay, I'm going to scheme so that I can betray Jesus. I mean, that's awful. And yet we look at that and God used it so that Jesus would be arrested and be crucified and accomplish our salvation. Is God sovereign over evil? Judas' evil and wickedness, yes. And I mean, we touched on it, but the death of Jesus, even more so than just this passage, is probably the clearest example of God sovereignly in control of even evil and wickedness. I mean, we see it here, that the the Pharisees and the high priests, they're they're plotting to murder Jesus, but it says that they they spoke more than they knew. And and then in Acts 2, Peter is preaching about what happened, and he says this, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to... To the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Do, Do you see both things happening? Peter says, it's you guys that plotted and murdered Jesus. And yet it was the definite plan and will of God for it to happen. Even Acts 4 It says this, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand, God's hand, and your plan had predestined to take place. Isn't that amazing? The writer of of Acts says, okay, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the Jews, you guys all schemed against Jesus to do exactly what God had predestined to take place. Is God sovereign over evil? Yes. Is He providentially working out His plan in the midst of evil and sin and suffering and wickedness? Yes. God will not be stopped. His plans will not be thwarted. He uses even the most wicked, vile, sinful things to bring about His plan of redemption. He, like We talk about God uses everything for our good and for His purposes. Now, I know that that doesn't make it easier to swallow. I know I'm aware of that. And I know that it can be confusing when you look at evil and suffering and you go, really, God, you're using this? We would just go, well, just why are you even allowing it, God? I don't like pain. I, I remember in Maple Ridge, there was a, a, a man on staff that we often had arguments about this because he really, he really wrestled with how God could be sovereign over evil and tried to to come up with different ways to go, you know, let's just let God off the hook a little bit. And oftentimes in our discussions, because I truly believe that there is not an atom in the universe that is outside of the control of God, He is providentially working out everything. Well, we've talked about this. Do we have free will? Yes, right? They go together. But He would often bring up the Holocaust, and He would say, really? God is sovereign even over that? And I would say to him, listen, I don't, I don't know how, how to answer that to make it, the Holocaust seem easier. Than, it, was, it was terrible. But here's your options. God is sovereign even in the midst of that, or you have a God that is impotent who is unwilling to intervene. Which one do you want? Do you want a God that isn't all-powerful, that isn't all-knowing, that isn't uh, sovereign, that isn't in control? Do you want that kind of God just so you can explain why things happen? I don't want to serve a God like that. So I know many of you have had experiences or you're going through experiences or you will go through experiences of sin and wickedness and evil done to you and pain and suffering. And so my encouragement to you is it doesn't help when you're in the muck. I get that to go, well, don't worry. God's in control. You're like, thanks. Can you help me get out of the muck? Right? So I know that it doesn't necessarily take the pain away. But what it does is it lifts your eyes to worship a God that is still in control despite what is going on in the world. So I'll end with one more example. And this is a personal example story of sin and, and wickedness. Um, I grew up in, in Ottawa. Many of you might know that in Ontario, and that's not the sin and wickedness. <laughs> but uh, I grew up in Ottawa, and my dad uh, was a pastor and is a pastor still. Um, and in Ottawa, he was the pastor of a church about our, our size um, and was there for just over 10 years. But near the end of our time, there, there, there was this family then that um, wanted to destroy the work of the church and wanted to destroy uh, my dad's ministry and wanted to destroy uh, our family. And so, they came up with false accusations and lies about things that our family members had done in an attempt, and I, I believe that whether they knew it or not, they were being used by Satan to try and destroy the church and the work of ministry there and accusations that came out and, and all of these kinds of, of, of things. I mean, it was awful. And I'm 15, 16, 17, something somewhere in there, and I'm I'm watching this go down in this church that you go like these are these are Christian people. Why is this happening? And it was just it was awful. It was wickedness. It was sinful, and it was an attempt to just destroy. The good that my dad had done in ministry, the good that the church was doing, let's just derail all of this. And I remember wrestling, like, God, like, why are you allowing this to happen? It it like really sucks. It's not fun. Being a teenager and seeing your parents go through that, seeing siblings go through that, being accused of things that aren't true. I mean, it's not fun. But was God sovereign over that without a doubt? And did God use it for my good and for His glory? Without a doubt. The things that I learned in those few years cemented for me my faith in Jesus. It cemented Him. Jesus is worth following. That that, that thing that went down, it, it showed me okay, how how do I actually persevere through trials? I mean, in the Bible, we're promised that you will go through trials. So I watched my parents persevere, slug it out. I watched my parents model Christ-likeness. And and to make matters worse, the family that did all this was neighbors with us. And my dad told me, many a night, I wanted to go out and just flip the bird to them and go, you're ruining my family, but he didn't. And so I said, I saw Christ-likeness modeled for me. And it shaped my view of of ministry in the church. Nothing will stop the church of Jesus. And so we go, was that sin and wickedness and evil? Absolutely. Was God sovereign over it? Yes, praise the Lord that He was. And so for you, in your pain and in your suffering and when sin and evil is done to you, I'm not saying that, oh, just, just go along with it. But what else would you cling to? Would you go, God, I don't understand why this is happening, but I know that you are sovereign even over this. And that is my rock. That is what I'm going to hold on to. I mean, these these chief priests thought that they were so wise plotting the murder of Jesus. And it's like God is sitting on his throne going, perfect. You are going to bring about the redemption of all my children that are scattered abroad. Because of this evil and wickedness that you're planning in your heart. So, God, I thank you that you are sovereign. I, I thank you that, God, you are in control. Now, that, that doesn't mean that we now understand all of the reasons why, in your sovereignty, you allow things to happen and you cause things to happen. God, I don't think we'll ever fully know until eternity but we can trust Your character. We can trust who You are, who You've revealed Yourself to be in Your Word. We can can trust Your intentions. God, we know that You are using everything, even sin and wickedness and evil, to bring about Your amazing plan of redemption. God, I just pray that You would help us rest in that that we wouldn't feel the need to somehow change our doctrine to defend you. I mean, you're the God of the universe. You need no defending. And so help us to to live in the tension of not fully knowing how this all plays out, but trusting that God, nothing takes you by surprise. I mean, even the, the, the plotting of the murder of your son was under your control. You used... Wicked men plotting murder to bring about our salvation. And so, God, we just worship you. You are so high above us. We we can't even fathom how great you are. And so I just pray for for those in this room who have been hurt by sin and, and wickedness and evil and who are maybe going through that right now. That that truth that you are sovereign, even in the midst of that, would be their anchor. God, that their, their anchor would just go down so deep into your sovereignty that when the waves of life crash into us over and over and over, we just wouldn't be moved because we know, no, I know that God's in control. I know that he's sovereign. This stuff isn't going to topple me over. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to weather my way through this because I know who God is and he won't let me go. So God, just cement that in us. And I just thank you again. I just praise you for who you are. You are so good to us. So just do your work in each of our hearts. And and we just pray all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen.